Hello, listeners. I want to share an amazing resource with you. It's called Hello Divorce. Founded by a lawyer and certified family law specialist, Hello Divorce can help you no matter where you are in your divorce process. So whether you're just getting started or if you're near the end but have stalled out and need help to get over the finish line, Hello Divorce can help. They provide full-service divorce support, and they can handle divorces of all kinds, all net worths, and with or without children. It's completely online, convenient, and they offer you support all the way through. Their clients get divorced in one-third the time and at one-tenth the typical cost. So go to hellodivorce.com backslash beyond and receive $100 off the cost of their services. And I want you to know, Erin Levine, who's my friend and the CEO and founder of Hello Divorce, was a guest on episode 197 entitled, Get the FYI on DIY Divorce. So be sure to go check it out. We'll link in the show notes. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. The best interest is, again, very broad. You're trying to really balance the goals between promoting certainty and predictability for families while leaving discretion for recognizing each family's unique circumstances. But because of that breadth, there's a lot of lack of predictability between different state courts. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I am joined by a colleague who was here in Chicago with me, and then I found out she actually has relocated down to Texas. I am joined by attorney Stephanie Tang, but we're going to call her Professor Tang now because that's what she did when she moved down to Texas. She is now an assistant professor of law at Baylor's Law School, and very helpful, she is teaching family law. So, Let me tell you um, a little bit more about her. When she was here in Illinois, she was specialized in the area of family law and was a partner in a family law firm here in the city. Uh, She has a number of certifications as a mediator. She's a fellow with Collaborative Divorce Illinois and uh, a certified financial litigator with the American Academy for Certified Financial Litigators. Um, So I have to tell you a little bit about why Stephanie is here, because you all, my listeners, have been reaching out asking me questions on a certain topic for a while now, and it's a topic that I think to listeners seems like it should be really easy, like I'm going to send you a one-line email with an answer, and I'm going to explain this concept to you, and I know 
it's a really complicated issue, but I was having a hard time finding an expert who could come on and speak to you all about it. And then I saw a post on social media. Stephanie had just authored a wonderful law review article on this topic specifically, and she has reviewed the law as a part of her research for her article in all 50 states, which is almost like a necessary part of giving this overview. So Stephanie is here today, Professor Tang is here today to talk with us about the best interest standards when it comes to children. Yes, what the heck are best interests? So long intro, but let me just say thank you so much. When I reached out, you immediately said you would come on and share your knowledge with my listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, this is a, as I just said, this is a topic I have wanted to cover. And, you know, as an attorney in the field for 30 plus years, I know how I explain best interests to clients because it's a question that comes up all the time. But when you're speaking to a listenership that is people coming in from all 50 states and really all around the world, I think the show's listened to in something like 183 countries around the world. How do you explain best interests? And and even in one state, it's hard to explain. So I'm really excited to sort of dive into this. I want to give a caveat to listeners that this is a complicated topic and there is no one right answer to a lot of the questions we're going to review. But maybe that's where we should start out. Why is this? So- it seems simple. It's it's what's in the best interest of my kids. Why is that so difficult? So I think that just as a whole, it'd be inter- helpful to your listeners to understand a little bit about the history of the best interest of the child standard. So under the English common law, children are viewed as property of their father's wife's legal identity merged with her husband's and she had no right to property or custody of children born to the, during the marriage. Now, by the 1920s or 30s, this paternal presumption gave way to what was known as the tender year presumptions, where young children were seen as best cared for by their mothers when they were younger. Then the best interest of the child standard came about in the 1970s, which really the goal was to move this from a parent-centered standard for custody determinations to a child-centric determination. And that's it. At the core, that is the only kind of commonality between all 50 states is that this is a child-centric standard. And it's popular because it is focusing more on the needs of the children as opposed to the parents. But as you said, there's a lot of discrepancy in how it's been applied by state courts. It's often criticized by judges, by the legislators, by obviously litigants going through the custody proce- proceedings uh, by as being very discretionary to the judges, leading to very unpredictable and arbitrary results because of how differently it's applied. Now, the best interest is, again, very broad. Uh, You're trying to really balance the goals between promoting certainty and predictability for families while leaving discretion for recognizing each family's unique circumstances. But because of that breadth, there's a lot of lack of predictability between different state courts. You know, such a good point. And you've used a word there a couple of times that I want to jump in on because I'm not sure listeners will completely understand it. You talked about discretion when it comes to 
determining what is in a child's best interest. So what does discretion in this context mean? So discretion in this context is judicial discretion. So the ability for a judge to make a determination based on potentially subjective views uh, and determining what is relevant. And so there's subjectivity and discretion for the judge to determine what what factors they consider relevant in the first place. And then secondly, what weight is given to each of those factors? So not just what factors are considered, but also to what extent those should be considered and what which of those factors when weighed against other factors weigh more in favor of one parent or another in making this best interest determination. Okay, so I think we're getting a little smidgen of an idea as to why this might be a little more complicated than we thought, right? So let's let's hone in on, because you've mentioned them, these factors, right? The factors that judges are going to look at in determining what's in a child's best interest. Are the what are the factors and are they uniform across all states? So they're not uniform, which again adds to the complication, right? Yeah. Uh, there are 43 states that employ or have adopted statutory factors. And by statutory factors, I mean within the state's law, there are certain factors that guide a court's analysis. Some states like Florida or South Carolina have an extensive list of factors, and some states like Alabama have a short list of factors. Now, some other states, so the other seven states, have no factors at all, which means that there is no guidance to the courts as through the actual law itself as to what courts are supposed to consider. The states that do consider factors commonly will consider things like the wishes of a, ch a child or preferences of a child, the child's adjustment to their home, school, or community, the stability of the environment, mental or physical health of all the individuals involved, interaction between both parents and the children's lives, and prior domestic violence or abuse factors. And then a lot of the states that do have these factors, again, going back to that judicial discretion of the judges being able to decide kind of what is relevant, have a catch-all factor. So they, at the end of all these lists of factors, include a factor that's any other relevant factor. <laughs> I was that waiting for that one. So just any other factor that the judge considers relevant. And that means that there is a burden that is on the attorneys in court and on the litigants to present anything else under the sun outside of these factors that they might consider to be relevant for a custody determination and hope that this judge decides within their discretion that this is a relevant factor for the custody determination. Yeah, that's and that's a really good point, because what you're what i hear you saying is that they're sort of in the 47 states anyway that have statutory criteria um there's a list of factors that the judge will look at so the attorneys are going to present evidence that's in favor um, or supports their client's viewpoint as to their child's best interests in supporting those factors but then with the, that catch-all they can kind of bring in the kitchen sink if they can tie it to some argument as to why this information and this factor is relevant to that child's best interests. That's exactly right. And that's what <laughs> makes it a little bit more complicated. And to add 
I guess one additional layer of that complication is that, so as I mentioned, 43 states have statutory factors and seven don't. Of the seven that don't, there are a few states that have adopted kind of judicially determined factors. And by judicially determined factors, I mean, litigants have appeared in front of, or parents have appeared in front of the courts and they've presented their evidence and the judges are essentially saying, hey, I don't have any factors to consider through the law, so I'm just going to make them up myself. And so they have these seminal cases that go up to the Supreme Courts in the respect or the highest courts in the respective states, and they have a list of factors that these judges have determined. Again, these are reactive to a particular case circumstance, so they may not be comprehensive, like if it got, went through the legislative process. And what happens is that because they're not codified in any kind of statute, they're not actually in the law, that the courts that have followed these highest court decisions are just picking and choosing of these factors, which ones are relevant. So um, the three states that are kind of the seminal examples of this are um, Texas, Rhode Island, uh, and Mississippi, which have a, all have a kind of seminal Supreme Court case. So it's Pettinato in Rhode Island, Albright in Mississippi, and then Holly versus Adams in Texas. And what happens is that in all of these, the, the cases that have followed that decision, courts have looked at one factor, have looked at all of the factors, have looked at some of the factors, and they've all been affirmed on appeal in some kind of capacity. So none of these factors are actually binding on the courts in any way and are being kind of thrown in there as judicially determined factors. So that adds a kind of another layer of complication to this analysis. You know, I'm thinking about it. So it's probably appropriate that it's Texas as one of those states, because it sounds like the wild, wild west, right? Like you're throwing a bunch of factors up in the air and shooting at them all to see which ones are going to hit in your case. And I would, uh, you know, imagine that it's hard enough, and I know this as having been a litigator going into a courtroom to put on a custody case, it's hard enough when you know what you're shooting at, what you're trying to provide evidence in support of your client's position on when you have those factors. I didn't, I've never practiced in one of the states where you didn't have at least that statutory list of items, but you've mentioned another complicating factor and, you know, I only know, again, the answer in the two states in which I practice. So even in the states that you have a list of factors in a law that says that, I don't think, at least in the states that I practice in, I don't think there's anything in that law that then says, and this factor is the most important one, and this factor is the least important one, and here's the order that you're supposed to consider them. How, how does a judge decide that? Sure. So I think there's... One caveat that I wanted to mention first is that in some states, so again, got 43 states that have statutory factors, and in five of those states, it's completely discretionary as to whether the judges even consider any of the factors in the first place. Okay. So that means that it could be that they don't consider or give any weight to any of these factors in any in those states that just leave it discretionary. Now, the rest of the states, the other 38, do have a mandatory list of factors that courts are supposed to consider, which means in theory that they should kind of give weight as to each of these factors. Some of the states require written findings of fact, which means that the judge actually has to make on the record or in a writing uh, what 
how they've considered each of these factors. But you're right. They don't have any weight as to this is the most impactful factor in terms of making a determination for custody or this shouldn't be given as much weight. So that's where the subjectivity and discretion of the judge really shows. And one of the cases out of Massachusetts gave one of the criticisms that if these parties were in front of a different judge, this could have a completely different outcome that based on the judge's subjective views on these respective factors and the way that they're given, they could have a completely different outcome of the particular case. And that's difficult for litigants in terms of coming in, determining what their chances are, both at the lower court and then also on the appellate court level in terms of challenging that decision, because they don't know what factors have been considered. And sometimes in these states that don't require written findings of fact, they have no way of knowing. It just says the courts have considered these factors and that's it. And here's what I've decided in my discretion signed by the judge. And that's a very good point. And I know I've had that conversation going into a, a courthouse with a client for a trial or a hearing and have said, you know, a, a lot of times in Connecticut where I practice, you would find out what judge you were assigned to when you showed up for your hearing, not usually trial, but at least hearing. And I would say, you know, different judge, different outcome. There are six family court judges down this hallway. And if we went in and put on the same case in all six courtrooms, we would very likely get a different outcome in all six courtrooms. And that makes it not just hard for the parents. It makes it hard for the children. It makes it hard for the attorneys. It makes it hard for any everyone trying to operate within that system to make sure that ultimately what we all want, the best outcome for the children, happens. When we're talking about the factors, let me go back to the factors. Are there, of the ones that you listed or the ones that are the most common to be looked at, are there any that, at least in your review, appeared to be you know, at the higher level of of being given importance, at least? That's difficult, and it depends on the state, unfortunately. But there are ones that come up frequently over and over again, and those are the ones that I mentioned. So the child's wishes or preferences, the adjustment to homeschool and community is often looked at, the interrelationship between the child and their siblings and their parents, the willingness of a and ability of a parent to facilitate and encourage a continuing relationship with the other parent. That's one that I hadn't mentioned before, but has come up much more recently, especially in the last five to 10 years um, as it relates to alienation concerns or things like that. And then again, any history or evidence of domestic violence or severe uh, substance abuse or other kinds of physical abuse are often looked at very strongly in my review of the case law. Let uh, let me ask about a couple of them because I know they are issues that clients bring up a lot. And they think that, you know, because there's a very strong or they feel there's a very strong case on one particular issue, they think that's just should be dispositive of everything. And the one I hear most often from listeners is my kid has said they want to live with me. They don't want to live with their other parents or they don't want this or they do want that. They, they don't understand why that just doesn't settle everything. 
And I've always used the analogy, well, I I know my stepkids, if I had been giving them options for what to have for dinner, they would have opted for the ice cream rather than the balanced, healthy meal. So yes, what they prefer or what they opt for has some bearing on that decision and they might get the ice cream for dessert. It, It shouldn't drive the bus. And I know this is different in every state, so I'll give you, I'm going to give you that one right away. But what are the factors or what, what do judges look at when it comes to a child's professed, you know, wishes in the, in a custody case? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is the child's maturity. I would, I, and I use the word maturity as opposed to age, because I think that there are some states that specifically cut off at a particular age. Texas, for example, uses age 12. Not sure. Uh, but that's just the age that they picked. And then other states have other age cutoffs. But in my experience, what the judge is primarily looking at is how mature is the child to actually articulate this preference? So are they five? And they really are kind of picking between ice cream or vegetables, right? And they don't, or they're not able to articulate anything except for, I want to live with this parent because they don't punish me as much, or I can watch more TV, I can play more video games. And that is not as articulated of a preference as opposed to um, a child who is more mature and has the ability to actually make that reasoned assessment of here's what's happening at one parent's house and here's what's happening at the other parent's house. And then here's how it's impacting my life in terms of my schooling, my ability to finish homework, my academic success, my personal and social success, and the ability to articulate that I think is giving greater weight. Now, the other barrier to the children's preference is how that is actually expressed to the judge. Because the children can tell their parents all day long that they prefer to be with one parent or another. And frankly, a lot of the times the children are just going to say, whenever you, (laughs) I want to be with you, right? They're not going to say, I want to be with the other parent. Yeah. Because they don't want to hurt their parents. And that's absolutely reasonable and understandable. But there's other there's avenues in which that this information comes to a judge and the judge will weigh that in terms of how credible that evidence is. So probably the least credible is from the parents' mouths, right? Because the child is going to say what the parent wants to hear. There's optionality uh, in terms of guardian ad litems or attorney ad litems that are appointed by the court that interview the child and can express that preference either through a written report or an oral oral report to the judge. And that's given slightly more weight again, because they are, they're talking to someone in a more neutral setting or a child custody evaluator, in which case, again, given a little bit more weight because it's coming from a more objective source rather than that subjective source. So in terms of weighting, or weighing, I should say, um, the preferences between uh, children and choosing between their respective parents. I think the biggest thing that I've seen is looking at that credibility determination, what the source of that information is coming from. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, many parents uh, will say in the heat of the moment when they're very certain their child is going to support the position on custody that that parent wants, will say, just bring my child in. We'll just bring him or her in and they can say, they can tell the judge. And, you know, at least my experience was most judges do not want to talk to your child. They don't want your child anywhere near the courthouse. No, 
and they don't want their the children to be dragged in. It really depends on the jurisdiction. And again, in some jurisdictions, it's actually mandatory uh, depending on the child's age. So in Texas, where I am now, if, as I said, if the child is over the age of 12 and a parent motions for it, the judge actually has to conduct the in-camera interview. But in Chicago, where I practiced before, it was discretionary. And I will say in my six years of practice, I think I had one judge conducted an in-camera interview on a very, very limited issue about whether the child wanted to go to a foreign country for a foreign exchange program. And so nothing to the level of kind of an initial custody determination. Who do you want to live with? Right. Yeah. Very reluctant to conduct those in-camera judicial interviews. It's it's a very difficult place to put children who are already going through trauma just through this process as, as well. I know that some of you out there are dealing with complex financial circumstances in your divorce that are leaving you with a pit in your stomach. Well, Hollis Hardiman is a certified divorce financial analyst and wealth manager who can provide you with the guidance and support you need during the divorce process. Hollis was recently a guest expert on the show and you can listen to her popular episode, What You Need to Know About Your Money When Starting Your Divorce. Hollis is highly trained and experienced in analyzing all aspects of divorce finance, including property division, spousal and child support, estate planning, and investment tax considerations. She works closely with you and your legal team to ensure you receive a fair settlement considering your financial needs and goals. So regardless of where in the divorce process you are, Hollis can provide you with the insights and tools you need to make informed decisions and to secure your financial future. You can get in touch with Hollis today to schedule a complimentary consultation. Just email her at hardiman at meritfa.com and be sure to let her know you heard about her on Divorce and Beyond. Stay tuned for more from Professor Stephanie Tang as we explain all the ins and outs of just what in the best interests of the children really means and why it's not as simple as you think. The biggest thing is the child's maturity. I, and I use the word maturity as opposed to age. In my experience, what the judge is primarily looking at is how mature is the child to actually articulate this preference. Here's what's happening at one parent's house and here's what's happening at the other parent's house. And then here's how it's impacting my life in terms of my schooling, my ability to finish homework, my academic success, my personal and social success. The ability to articulate that, I think, is giving greater weight. If you are enjoying this episode, be sure to check out last week's show with the founder of Divorce Girl Smiling, Jackie Pilisoff, as we talk about how to cope when it seems like your ex has moved on in a hot minute. Really, you deserve to be with somebody who loves you. And nobody, people will say like, oh, I loved him so much and he left. Well, you deserve to be with someone who doesn't leave, who's going to love you. And why would you want him if he doesn't want you anyway? And now we return to today's show. The other factor I wanted to talk about, because you mentioned it just a moment ago, is that one that's become much more uh, prominent, I would say, in that, as you said, in the last five to 10 years. And that is because this is so hard to explain to clients. They don't, they don't like this one. They don't, and, and it's hard to explain. The parent, very often a, a judge will give weight to 
the parent who is willing to foster a relationship between the children and the other parent. And by the time many parents get to the courtroom in a custody battle, it's that. It's a battle. They're not liking each other very much, and they usually have, in their minds at least, very good reasons why they should be the custodial parent. And so this can be a very difficult uh, factor for parents to understand and to give understand why a judge would give weight to this. Yeah, and I do think that it's very difficult for parents to kind of understand that. And I think what the judge is looking at it again is from this child-centric approach is how this is being portrayed to the child in terms of the other parent. And so questions we'd always ask are, do you have pictures of the other parents in your home? Or have you kind of cut the other parent's head out of all the pictures? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then what do you what do you think is positive about the other parent? Because at the end of the day, they want to be able to see that you're able to kind of put aside your personal feelings for the other parent and be able to say something positive. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I I love them. They're the, the best parent in the world. But it can be. I think that they're very good at keeping our child on track with homework. I think that they're they always make sure that they know they attend their activities that they know what's going on they're very organized and these i think are very complementary attributes to my own in terms of that co-parenting relationship and i do think that judges are looking for some positive acknowledgement and again i don't i don't tell my clients to just make up like this is the best parent in the world because obviously that's not realistic. And that's, that honestly would be less credible to a judge. If you say like, this is the best parent and they should get custody. That's not what we're asking for, but some kind of positive acknowledgement that the other parent is a good parent and has good attributes. uh, And that can, that can really help and support the child. And again, that the rearing of your child. Right. Well, and you know, inherent, I think this goes to the fact that inherent in many best interests concepts or the idea of of best interests is, at least where I've practiced, is the idea that it's it's believed in general that it's best in children's best interests to have both of their parents involved in their lives. And so there's sort of that push-pull of this, like if one parent is is very intent on cutting the other parent out for reason, I mean, there are obviously, I'm not talking about the, the cases where there are very valid and good reasons why that might happen. But is that something that a judge looks at, that there's sort of this inherent belief that it is in a child's best interest to have both of their parents involved in their upbringing? Absolutely. And I think that's inherent in all of these other factors as well, is that they want to be able to see there is a bit, some ability to have a co-parenting relationship in some capacity. Again, you don't have to be best friends, but to be able to foster that, uh, foster that relationship because it does trickle down to your children. Whatever your attitudes towards the other parent are, if you're constantly swearing at the other parent, insulting the other parent, that's going to reflect on your kids too, especially for younger children in my experience, um, in my private practice work where we've seen children take on the personalities and the insults that they've heard their parents say and call their parents insulting words that they've heard their parents say, even if it is just in the context of like they are just with their own parent, not in the time of the exchange. 
But if they hear their parent constantly on the phone saying, yeah, so-and-so is a terrible parent. So-and-so uh, is, you know, is a deadbeat, is a, yeah. Like that. All of all of that reflects on the child and the child then takes that on a, on their own opinion. And that can be seen very negatively by a judge because, as you said, the inherent view of the judge is that it's in the best interest for the child to have a relationship with both parents. Yeah. And I think we see that very strongly. That's a very difficult premise to overcome. Very, very difficult. Believe it or not, we're, we're running short on time, but I want to make sure I ask you another question because I know this one comes up for listeners all the time as well. So they've gone to court, they've done, they've put their case on and the judge has come out with a decision as to what is in that child's best interests. And, and there is now, there are now custodial orders for that child. The parent doesn't agree with them or after trying it out, it they're, they're convinced or something happens or something changes. Is it possible that the best interests change or that there's a way to change those custodial orders over time? Absolutely. There are, there's a little bit of variation on this as well. And primarily the variation comes in the timing of when you can bring that modification action. So some states have a one-year moratorium or two-year moratorium, which means that you can't bring a proceeding to modify a custody order unless there is some kind of serious endangerment to the child. And that's in the interest of not just having perpetual litigation. You just have a custody order entered and you're right back into court the next day, right? The courts want to, again, promote some stability for the child. And so that's what the idea of the moratorium provisions are. In some states, it, they don't have any kind of restriction on the modification. But again, the judges will not look favorably upon you coming right back into court that same month to try to change it after they just made that determination. Usually the legal standard across the board in the majority of states is that there's two things that the judges look at in a two-step analysis. First, as to whether there is a material or substantial change in circumstances from the time of the initial entry of the custody determination. So that could be we entered this custody order and the other parent is never exercising the time that was awarded to them, or they're always late, or they're never getting their homework done, or again, things that will actually impact the child. I'm not talking about little things like this parent was late to dropping my kid off at basketball one time and it was right. only five minutes late, but I'm back because this is not in the best interest of my child. So, and then the second step to that is, again, the best interest determination. So whether the modification is in the best interest of the child. And then we're going back to the looking to see whether your state has specific, specific factors that the court is supposed to consider in making those determinations. They're the same kind of factors that we talked about before. So looking at those best interest factors, if they have them, and if they don't have statutory best interest factors, looking at the relevant cases to see what factors have the courts considered in the past that might guide our understanding of what the courts might look at. And that can be a very county specific inquiry, unfortunately. Now you're looking at, okay, here I'm in Dallas County or Williamson County or something like that in, in or Cook County where I used to practice. And now you're looking at, okay, here's what this specific 
appellate court decisions from this that have been appealed up from this county have said or the factors that they've looked at. And that might inform your decision better than so say using Cook County as an example, I was in Chicago before. If I, I would look at the Chicago cases as opposed to the ones from downstate, because they were likely more informative in terms of what potentially the judges might look at. And again, just like you were saying about Connecticut, we had over 45 judges in domestic relations in Chicago. So I say that with the caveat that the judges also had a significant turnover. So they might not be the same judges at all, but yeah. at least can give you just a little bit of guidance as to what might be relevant evidence to start gathering, what to make sure that you provide to your attorney in terms of things that might be looked at that you might not have considered otherwise. So even if it's something as simple as a picture of your house or your child's report cards or things like that, that you, or any pictures that they've drawn if they're younger or text messages between you and the other party, all these things that may not have been considered in terms of, or you just, instead of giving them the entire text log, here are specific texts that go towards some of the factors that the courts have considered, and that can help your attorney go a long way instead of sifting through thousands and, and thousands yeah. of texts that you've, every text you've ever sent to your ex, um, which will cost you significant attorney's fees, but also not be helpful for your attorney to be able to parse out exactly what is relevant to your particular case. Yeah, such a uh, such a good point, and and it makes me think of. I know I said that was going to be the last question, but I, I I thought of one more that I have to ask because we you talked about the factors that a judge is going to look at in general. The one factor that every parent wants to talk about, and we haven't talked about it, so I would just want to get your thoughts on this is. What bearing do what the parents want have on the judge's determination? Many parents are, I mean, we, you and I both in practice have heard, I want more time with my kids. I can't imagine not seeing them on Christmas. Uh, it's very I-centered. Where does what I want as a parent come into play here? So this goes back full circle to this is supposed to be a child-centric inquiry. And so in my practice, that has never been a dispositive factor because usually both parents want to have more parenting time. And so what the judge is going to be looking at is more of these other factors that take into consideration and really the realistic ability for the parents to exercise what they're looking for. So I think the the biggest thing that I found that clients had a barrier to was understanding what this actually looked like in real life in their practice. So I would sit down and I'd say, tell me what your work schedule is. Tell me what your children are enrolled in, in terms of activities. Let's look at on a actual calendar, what time you could actually exercise. And if the parent is someone who's traveling all the time and not able to get out of that travel, but saying, I want more parenting time, that would be the kind of aha light bulb going off moment where I would say, I don't know where you realistically could get this additional time. I know that you want it and let's talk about what you could do at your job or if there's additional flexibility or something like that. But that's what the judge is going to look at is the realistic ability to actually exercise this time, not just a blanket. I want more time. They want to know practically what this is going to mean for the child, what this is going to mean for the child's schedule. They're not going to send this kid back and forth on hour long blocks 
that meet a parent's schedule. And you're going to have to kind of figure out what is actually realistic. You know what? That's like such a good point to end this on because that is, I know for so many parents, the hardest thing to understand. Um, and, and I get that. I, I've always gotten that from day one when we're in practice. It's so hard to sit with a parent and explain to them that, you know, everyone in that courtroom will understand that they truly want this, but there is a practical aspect to this and their their ability to actually be the parent in that moment has a lot to do or at least is one is one factor that a judge is going to look at so i think we've given listeners a at least a good taste of why i said what seems to be so simple oh it's in the best interest of the children is really one of the most complicated factors that ever will hit a courtroom um, in a family case. And I really appreciate you taking the time, Stephanie. Um, I am going to, I want to mention to everyone, I will link to the law review article. It's fascinating. It's so well-researched. Um, for my colleagues out there, I highly recommend that you give it a review. And to the listeners out there who are not happy about the laws in your particular state around custody, Stephanie even has some suggestions in there about how perhaps we could improve upon some of our uh, custodial laws across this country. Uh, again, in the best interests of the children. So thank you so very much for, for joining me. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, wanted more information on the article, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Sure. So you can look at my email on the Baylor Law website, which is Stephanie underscore Tang at Baylor.edu. And that would be the best way to reach me. Otherwise, the papers that I've been publishing or the drafts that I have are all posted on the Social Science Research Network or SSRN. So you can look those up there. I also, I would be remiss to say that this was all my research that I did without any help from any of my students. So I did want to thank all of my research assistants. So Catherine Frieden, Joanna Gonzalez, Neely Lambert, and Sheridan Steen for their help with the research on this as well. I could not have done this article without you all and all of your work trying to look through all of the best interests of the child statutes across all 50 states. So I did want to give them a shout out at the end here. I'm so glad that you did because I, having read the article, there's no way any one person could have done that. So bravo to all of you and to anyone out there who's going to be going to Baylor's Law School, be sure to take family law with Professor Tang. So thank you so much again, Stephanie, for joining me. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.